Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hello. Hello. And I'm also here with a one, Mr. Dean Barker. Hey, Dean. Hey, Guthrie. Hey, Susan. So, hello. Uh, we are continuing our journey of object discovery, and uh, so I hope uh, hope everyone's having a, a, a great time. Um, you guys have. Uh, I, topics in mind and before the show we were looking up things in books and so I don't know I think you guys got a whole thing planned so why don't you, why don't you take it away yeah we're trying to make it to 17 <laughs> so we've been doing this series if you haven't been following this series it's a series of episodes um, with Dean and me and Guthrie on a, a, this particular kind of this particular topic of about objects and user experience and we're at this is episode in the series this would be episode number five in our series and and i had jokingly said we were going to do 17 and and they both groaned and said no we're not and and we probably won't we're doing pretty good but we definitely needed at least five are we going to be done with the series today we might we might yeah, be. It depends we'll on how see. far we get. Yeah, got, we'll see. I've got, got two lot. things for you. I got All two right. things for oh, you. Just so. two. All right. Just two. But they're All big right, ones. Go ahead. Dive in. All right. So when we uh, parted last time, we had left just off at episode four. Left off at episode four, and we were doing some real time analysis with Guthrie's assistance of Spotify. Yeah. And so we used that as a kind of an ad hoc example to look at and talk about objects um without any preparation either it was a it was an on the spot instant analysis. Rock. and it immediately fell apart because there are different <laughs> versions of spotify <laughs> and then you were looking at a version it was different we were, we were looking doing at the desktop yeah. and the app yeah it was, it was kind of it was interesting all right yes dean that's where we left off <laughs> yes that's where we left off um and we had said at the end of that i believe we were going to Pick up with metaphor. So oh, yeah, that's right. Having, having discussed objects, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about metaphor, and I was thinking about that. Um, and I guess what it made me think of was the, the presence of objects, metaphor or not, is the de facto characteristic of an object-oriented design. But beyond that, if you look at the literature, for example, on object-oriented programming, you have polymorphism and, cap and encapsulation and inheritance and some of these constructs that are the basic principles or characteristics of OO development. And there are similarly a number of characteristics of object-oriented UI designs. So I thought we could talk about that starting with metaphor, but metaphor as an example of what I will call an explicit object, right? So there are implicit objects, which are things that aren't named, but we conceptualize them in our minds as objects. And then there are abstract objects, right? Even something like a playlist, like we were talking about last time with uh, Spotify would be an object and it would be an explicit object because it's named but it's still abstract right, right. it is still it's not a, a design concrete object in the real world correct it is not what we would think of uh as a real world object or a metaphor brought into the digital world it's a form right it's a digital form from an interaction standpoint but our computing life is not just full of those, but it's also full of metaphors. So, Susan, maybe you can do a mini lecture on metaphors. You want me to do a mini lecture on metaphors? <laughs> well, I mean, I or, can, what about yeah. or similes? I, can, <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, no, I because I yeah. think we need to just. I think we need to. We've been talking about objects. Yeah over the last few episodes, and we've given examples of objects. Um, and, and you just gave an example of another object, like a playlist. 
Um, so I think we need to give some examples of what we mean by metaphor. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, and talk about the relationship between metaphors and objects. So do all metaphors have an object? Do all objects have a metaphor? So a metaphor would be, uh, let's get, let's give an example of a metaphor. Um, if I have, I, I'm going to go back to my old standby. I'm sure Guthrie's tired of me talking about this, but let's talk about a calendar, right? So I can have a, a, this thing called a calendar that I'm going to interact with. And I'm not interacting with um, a calendar in paper on my desk. I'm interacting with a calendar on a screen. So it's not real. It's digital. And I, but I can make it look like a calendar. And it can play the role of, like a real calendar. Um, and it can even look like a paper calendar. And for any of you who were around um, when we first started getting, you know, digital things, uh, digital representations of real objects, there this used to be a really big deal. Like, you got to make it look exactly like the object in real life. You know, you have to, in the, graphically, it has to show the spirals of the notebook, if it's a notebook, you know, I mean, people really got stuck on making the metaphor very visual and very exact. Um, so I don't know, Dean, what, do you have some examples of metaphors that you can give? Yeah, well, I think to kind of contrast that to the idea of objects that aren't metaphors, if we go back to our, our Spotify example we were talking about, when we deconstructed that, there was this thing called a playlist, which was a select a, a collection rather of songs. Right. Uh, you know, if you're of a if you're of a certain demographic, your collection of songs was a mixtape, right? So you could easily put everything into what we might call a mixtape, and have it visually look like. A mixtape. They even right. Did instead that of calling you, it playlist, you would call right. it mixtape, and then it would look like I don't know what it would look like because mixtape looked different over the years, right? People used to do mixtapes on CDs. That's right, and they were they still were, called mixtapes. Yes. <laughs> right, right, and I and I bet there are people out there who call who think about playlists as being a mixtape. Exactly. So, so that's. An but example. if you but if you go back far enough, the whole idea of mixtape doesn't. It, it might be a metaphor that there are people that don't know what that means. That's right. Yeah. So everything's everything's of a time, right? So we were talking previously yeah. about some of the metaphors that you know doesn't make sense to have a floppy disk as a save icon. That's and, right. In that kind of thing. But if you look at your your graphical user interface for your operating system, you have things like uh, folders, windows, uh, trash can, recycle, yep. recycle bin. So are those uh, metaphors or are those are objects? Metaphors. What's yes. the difference between an object and a metaphor and a visual representation? So all, all metaphors are objects, not all objects our metaphors <laughs> and the visual representation uh, can and does vary. All right, so run through that again. All all metaphors are objects. Are objects. But Why not are all objects all, are metaphors. not all objects are metaphors? Why do you say that? So, what's an example of an object that's not a metaphor? Playlist. Uh, well, I think playlist would be an example of one. Yeah. Right? Or, or even just lists. You think about any classic search and, and search results. You have a list that comes out of that. That's not a necessarily it's an a object, metaphor. It's, it's an object. A metaphor. Right. You know, um, yep. Yep. It used to be, for instance, if you think about the contact list in your phone or in, uh, on your computer as part of your email, um, way back when that used to be represented with a metaphor 
of a Rolodex. Absolutely. Yeah. Which probably a lot of people don't know. Guthrie, do you know what a Rolodex is? Um, so I know what a Rolodex is, but a Rolodex <laughs> is a very silly old timey word that I'm yeah, gonna look up it the is. I'm gonna it look is. up the history of. So people, you know, before you had digital anything and you wanted to keep your contacts, your people you knew, you know, business yeah. contacts or personal contact, usually it was in the in business. Um, you know, basically there were two two different metaphors. Uh, one would be an address book because you would literally could have a little booklet that had the names and addresses of all the people you cared about. Um, that would typically be something you'd have personally. And then you had this, this thing that sat on your desk and it had cards in it and you would could spin it around and you That's put right. the cards in alphabetical do, order. Do you know what it stands for? It's called a Rolo. No, I don't. What does it stand for? Any guesses? Rolling index? Yes. Oh. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, there we go. That was a, good. I believe that is a portmanteau, is it not? Yes, that is. And do you want to guess the year? That it first first invented? Oh. 1937. I was going to say 64. 56. Oh, oh right. In between. Split the difference. There we go. Well, um, even, even like on, uh, so I'm on a Mac right now, and when I look, you mentioned contacts, when I look at the contacts app it's got like a little leather cover and it's visually has the little like index book. yeah it looks like an actual physical ad address book and apple of course has always been you know one of the leaders in sort of not just metaphor but aesthetically pleasing visual representations of such things right uh, years ago i heard a very famous and well-known UX person say that metaphors were not important in design because if during a user test you asked someone what is the metaphor that's out that you're for that's active right now in the task you're doing they wouldn't always be able to name it. And to him, that meant it wasn't important. And I was like, eh, 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 eh. I don't necessarily have to name it. It still no. could be useful as they move through their task. They still could be understanding what it is and what to do with it. They don't have to name it. They don't have to say, oh, well, that's a Rolodex or that's a yeah. book. And I think the same is true of objects as well. That's right. And then that's the implicit object. Although I would argue that uh, whoever you were listening to is, is wrong, not just from an interface perspective, but with the relationship between the language that we use and cognition. So we, yes. when we started out this series, I actually had grabbed, uh, believe it or not, I grabbed a book yeah. for, for discussion. This is uh, George Lakoff's uh, Metaphors oh. We Live By. Yeah. yeah, so this gets in. And Lakoff was a, yeah, was a linguist. Very interesting person. So they make the argument, he's got a co-author as well, Mark Johnson. They, they make the argument that, uh, that metaphor is central to cognition, yep. period, like yep. full stop. Thinking and so is just central to the way we think. Central to the way that we think. And uh, says early in the book that the essence of metaphor is understanding and experiencing one kind of thing in terms of another. Yeah. Well, when you take that idea and you take that into the digital realm, it becomes even more powerful. So right. something like the trash can or the recycle bin, I want to get rid of this file. That's where I put it. I want to organize this file. I put it in a folder. Right. right. So all of that makes sense. But and, and Lakoff's book is interesting because they they make the um, they make the case for the fact that the language that we use is so full of metaphors that that's that is our uh, that's our clue in terms of how central that is to cognition. So, yep. you know, the idea that argument is war, if you think of it in those terms, uh that's implicit, but the language that we use to talk about 
arguments make it so, right? Your claims are indefensible. Uh, he attacked every weak point in my argument. His oh, criticisms yeah, no, were the, right on target, right? Yeah, there's so and there's so much interesting research in this field. Um, I've seen research. Uh, you know, if you're part of a community group that's trying to solve um, a problem uh, in in uh, a community problem, you know, if you talk, they there. I and I I wish I remembered. I'm sure I wrote about this in one of my books. Can't remember who the researcher was. But they brought these community members together to try and come up with some solutions to a community problem. When they talked about it in terms of the issue going on, when they used um, territorial and war-like terms, right. battle, uh, struggle, um, the people came up with very different solutions than when they described the same problem in terms of illness. You know, well, we have this, this contagious disease in yeah. our community, right? And they were describing the same situation. They used the same data, but based on their language and therefore the metaphor that was operating, people actually came up with totally different solutions. So it's really critical that the language that you use, it's important. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, our computing world is full of metaphor, and our language is full of metaphor, yeah. uh, and our brain is full of not just metaphor, but objects. And yeah. when we render those things in the digital world, there is, um, I guess, the far end of the continuum of object-oriented design, which is a funny word for the highest fidelity visual metaphor that one could possibly create and design. How would you like to give a little mini lecture on that? No. No. What did you say? Say it again. This is I'm, sounds of like definitely if someone said to me, here's a sentence, who said that sentence? Well, I would say, oh, that's gotta be Dean Barker. We're, we're gonna play we're <laughs> gonna play design jeopardy. <laughs> Anyway, Susan, Can I you have get, metaphor for a hundred, please. Skeuomorphism for a hundred oh, or two hundred. I know what skeuomorphism is. Yes, of course you do. We've I think discussed I do. it many times. You know why I know really what skeuomorphism is? And yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with this word. Because a long time ago, this this is called me being honest and vulnerable on air. <laughs> a long time ago, I was giving a talk, and I, I might have even been online, and I got asked a question about skeuomorphism, and I didn't know what it was, and I said, I don't know what that is, and I thought my career, the reaction I got, I thought maybe my career was over. It was like, Susan Weintrank doesn't know what the word skeuomorphism means, so anyway. Well, it's pretty obtuse or obscure. I don't know. Or up something. It, well, it was it was a new term at the time. All right, Dean, you've now asked me three questions. What question do you want me to answer? Well, I think we should describe that because that is, I think people. So first of all, I think sometimes designers will conflate metaphor and skeuomorphism, right? And they're not the same thing. Kind of okay. like we were talking about before. Everything that is skeuomorphic is metaphorical, right? But you can have a metaphor without it being skeuomorphic. So we should we should define what it means and talk about it a little bit, um, and you know where you might find it and what in the in the pluses and minuses of it. And then I've got a kind of a corollary that I wanted to bring up. Well, okay, I'll tell you what I think skeuomorphism is, but then you can kind of f fix the definition. All right. So skeuomorphism is when you are displaying a visual representation of an object, but you do so in a very detailed way that um, you do it digitally. It's digital. It's on your screen. It's not a real thing, but you do it with a lot of detail so that it looks as much as possible like, an, like that object would in the physical world. And, you know, the one I always think about is because um, I do, as all three of us do, I think we all do some uh, music 
work, uh, you know, uh, recording and, and so on. And there's some music tools, at least that used to, I don't know if they do anymore. You know, there'd be controls for volume or reverb and they would look like little controls that would That's be right. on an old, you know, like on a, a physical unit and they, and there'd be sliders and, you know, it'd be very detailed. So it would look like burnished metal and, pla you yeah. know, and you would not just how you interact with it. I mean, how you interact with it and what it looks like visually, just as exact as possible to the physical product in the real world. And if you do that, then you are in, you are using skeuomorphism. Yep. That is, that is on point. So if you wanted to play music in an audio application in your computer and you have it where it looks like it's literally a CD player and you've got the, the buttons and the switches and everything and you might even drag and drop the CD into the player from right. your song As opposed list to just, you know, uh, an up arrow and a down arrow. And yeah, a it's a form. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when I, so you mentioned the music thing. So there's this a class of software applications called digital audio workstations. And uh, I, for years, have, have been an a Apple user. And so I was in some of the very early software that, that was out for the Apple. But in recent years, there's a an Apple uh, product called uh, Logic, Logic Pro. And it is, there is some of that in there, but it's fairly mm -hmm. form-based and it's very, almost digitally native, if you will, in terms of conceptualizing yeah. how you manipulate music and, and audio. Um, my oldest son, who is a drummer and uh, listens to a lot of hip hop, a number of years ago, a few years back, he got very interested in making beats. Uh, but he's a big gamer, so he's got this big Godzilla PC. And Logic is only for, uh, only for Macintosh. So I wanted to teach him how to do this stuff, but he couldn't use the same software that I use. So we settled on um, a product called Reason for him. And Reason is, uh, it's cross-platform. I've played with, a little, played with it a little bit. I can't get my head around it. And the thing is, the entire thing is skeuomorphic. You set up this audio studio and it's in your screen and you have 17 different hardware devices with all the wires connecting everything like the old switchboards. And it's like being in a recording. And I grew up in recording studios, but I look at that stuff now and the complexity of it just gives me a headache. And they went, they went all in on that design approach. He loves it. It works great for him. Uh, but it's the, it, it seems like a certain amount of needless complexity. So I think the, as a design tactic, I think the idea of using it is something to be carefully considered because while the metaphor has inherent benefits and the skeuomorphism lends itself typically, if done well, to uh, you know a high degree of aesthetic integrity, right? Like Reason itself, for example, that application is visually stunning. Um, but it misses, I think, sometimes an opportunity to take advantage of the digital world and some of the capabilities and some of the potential simplicity where you could simplify something that you couldn't necessarily simplify as easily in the hardware world, right? So it's not the be-all, end-all, but it is a, it's an arrow in our quiver. You know, it's a tool that we should use when it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it is important that, you know, there are relationships between objects, metaphors, and skeuomorphism, but they are not equivalent. Yes. Yeah, and these are all terms that, that designers should be familiar with. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing about it, and I wanted to kind of use the, the idea of metaphor as one of the characteristics uh, of an object-oriented design. The other thing that, that metaphor typically does in skeuomorphism, doubly so, is lend itself to direct manipulation, which is another characteristic of, um, of object-oriented design, and I think a key one. One of the things that truly makes an object uh, an object and an explicit object. Um, so I'm just going to continue my pattern. Susan, would you like to give a mini lecture on direct manipulation? Why is he doing this to me? 
uh, I think years of what is it? you know is resentment it? probably. <laughs> no. Really, Dude. really. Well, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's deference. I'm sorry. I'm it deferring. was it was 1999, <laughs> and we we spent three days. We spent three days in my office. I had an office building. And, and we, we didn't break together, for lunch. No. We put together our, our user-centered design methodology, and we argued about it, and this is payback. No. Okay. No, uh, direct deferring. manipulation. Yes. Direct manipulation is the idea. Uh, we'll see if I get, again, we'll see if I get the this right. Is the idea oh, hold on. that. Okay, go uh, do a little bit, and then I'll try something. Why? No, I just. Okay. Direct manipulation is, is the idea of the user being able to uh, interact um, with something in the, in the software, on the screen, and being able to, um, I'm trying not to use the word manipulate, uh, being able to take action upon that, that thing in some way to move it, to choose it, to open it, to delete it, to close it. Um, so the user is, is able to uh, uh, have an interaction with a particular thing. Yeah, and I, I would add to that with no degrees of separation, right? So if I grab a, if I grab a file on my desktop and I right-click and select delete, arguably you could say that's not direct manipulation. Right. If I, I yeah, if I grab if I use my mouse and I click on the object and I drag it across right. the screen and put it into a tra on top of a trash can thing. That's direct manipulation. Exactly. That's, direct manipulation. that's, that's now, the difference. And and this is a place where I think perhaps you and I don't agree. Which because. is rare. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, which is, I don't think, I, I think, I mean, direct manipulation is real, and there are times when it's really useful, and it, it came about during the whole graphical user interface revolution. Um, however, I think the idea of objects and actions uh I don't think you I don't think direct manipulation is a critical part of object decisions, object action decisions. Dun, dun, dun. I think it depends on your uh how you're rendering it, right? If you're if you're doing something that is graphically object based, then yes, I think it it would be inherently part of that. If you're doing something that is more form based, then not necessarily, right? Because you've got menu commands and, you know, you select something from a form and then you click a command button, you take action on it in, in different ways. So there are, See, there are models that lend themselves yeah, to we'll, that. We'll never get through this in five episodes. I think that there is a... a is episode 14. I think that there's a separate... Six, maybe. To me, so, the, yeah, this is interesting. And I think I think to me... To me, the most important part about making decisions when you're designing um, software or an app and you're going to use object-oriented design, which I hope you are, uh, I think the most important parts of that are the, uh, are the cognitive ramifications. I think... To me, the most important parts are um, whether or if you choose the right objects and you choose the right views of objects, then that product, that interaction that the person is having trying to do their, their task will be easy to learn and easy to use because you've made excellent decisions that either A, matched their mental model their cognition about what stuff was and or be easily created an, a new uh, allowed them to easily create a new mental model that makes the whole thing make sense and to me 
that is a whole thing unto itself, separate from the visual representation and manipulation. Separate but related. So yeah, the, the relationship, related. the the relationship between actions and objects is really profound, right? And so when we yes. talk about how are we visually representing something? Yes, that's one that question. And then how are they going? You know, we've decided there's going to be a playlist, and we've decided they can add things to the playlist. So we've decided on the object and the action, but now we have to decide how are they going to add things to the right. playlist, and what does the playlist look like, and what do the things look like, and then, you know, it, are, and are they going to do this through direct manipul manipulation or not? So they're absolutely connected, but I think you can have objects and views on things and you and not necessarily directly manipulate them. Yes, you, you can, but when you interact with them, regardless of whether it's direct manipulation or not, the visual design of the thing on the screen uh, can either aid or thwart cognition. Right, and this gets yes. into Don Norman's yes, thing around absolutely. signifiers and affordances, and it, and it can either aid or mess up. You know, you've got this whole plan for what the object and the view is and the action, and then you render it in such a way on the screen that it's like, what? What is that? What am I supposed to do with it? And so then it breaks down your wonderful plan. Well, and the you know the classic thing you hear in usability testing is. Uh, Either can I click on that or I thought I could click on that. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the degree yeah. to which something is clickable or not is an indication of, of how good the affordances are, right. which the affordances are. There's a somewhat modest distinction between signifiers and affordances, but the, the general gist of it is that a thing can be designed in such a way visually that it is, uh, easily understood what actions I can take on it by the visual design. Yeah. So a button looks clickable, for example. Right. So there is a relationship then also between skeuomorphism and, um, and, and this idea. I mean, not you definitely don't need everything to be skeuomorphic, but in the time frame when skeuomorphism became out of favor and yeah. went to a very flat design. Right, right, right then all of a sudden, you know, it was so far on the other side of the continuum that we lost any affordances or indication that, it, you know, it was like, well, how do I know what's clickable? And this became especially problematic, you know, with touch interfaces because it's not, well, I can't move my mouse over it and then right. tell what I can click on. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, I've taken us off on some digressions. I'm no. sorry about that. Guthrie, did you, were you looking something up and did you find it? No, no, no. Can you just keep, keep, going. keep going. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> do we have another one, Dean? Do I have to describe another thing or are we done with the quiz? <clears throat> well, listen, let me, <laughs> done with the quiz. let me, let me look at my list, but before I do just a, a kind of a, an additional point about skeuomorphism. It's not just a digital thing, right? So this is a kind of a tried and true yeah, design yeah. technique. If yeah. you think of in your, in your car, if you've got a, you know, a luxury car, you might have the plastic faux wood grain dash or whatever that looks yep. like it's actually been sanded and polished and, and made of wood. That's right. skeuomorphic. Right. Uh, and it's not a digital thing at all. So yep. Yep. Um, that leads to another kind of uh, not often discussed topic that I'll just bring up somewhat related because I think it's an interesting design strategy and it is tangentially related to object-based thought. And it's this whole idea of biomimicry. And that's another way of thinking about design uh, as a strategy that can be useful. Give us an example. So if you think about from an engineering standpoint, just the existence of an airplane, the design of the thing, the airplane itself, is modeled after what? A dinosaur. P potentially. A flying a, dinosaur. A flying, di a flying dinosaur. A, a pterodactyl. A mosquito. 
a mosquito. I, I would say conventionally, <laughs> probably, probably un- interpreted to be modeled after a bird, right? Oh. So the idea that there are there are things in nature that inspire us for design and I, engineering. I disagree. <laughs> you, you I knew do. this was coming. Okay. I okay. fundamentally disagree that it's designed like a bird, but that's okay. Well, uh, but what else in our natural environment has wings? Uh, uh, so there are things uh, like a leaf that glide, and there are uh, there are some animals that glide. A flying but, squirrel. But if you look at the, the conception of a plane, it's always been glider first, which has been one long stretch, and then there's been a thing in the middle where the person sits. But the the important thing that makes a bird a bird is that the wings can flap. All right, I'm, I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it. Wilbur Wright often observed buzzards near Ohio's Great Miami River. He noticed that the birds maintained their balance in flight by adjusting the angle and position of their wings. I go. guess a buzzard is a bird that soars, right? It doesn't really fly. It kind of yeah, drifts yeah. So it isn't the, the it isn't the moving of the wings, but it and is buzzard the is a dinosaur. So Susan was also was, right. She I'm gets she gets right. seventy five uh, yeah. points for for dinosaur. <laughs> now we really are going down a rat hole, aren't we? Anyway, biomimicry is is the idea of looking at our biological world for inspiration for design. So a yeah. few years ago, for example, uh, Speedo for the Olympics made uh, made a, a swimsuit, a full-body swimsuit that was inspired by shark skin, and it was, um, you know, more aerodynamic. What is aquadynamic, hydrodynamic, whatever that would be. Uh, it allowed the swimmers to swim faster, and, and they took their inspiration from shark skin. But I, I think of biomimicry, I mean, it's, it's its own very interesting topic as a designer to study, right? It's very rich, and it's very fertile, and it's not something that's, uh, I think, thought of often enough uh, in the design arts. It's a very useful tool. But the reason I bring it up as part of this conversation is that itself is it is a kind of uber metaphor in computing, right? So in information design, we talk about a tree. In AI, you have neural networks, right? Right. We have in uh, information visualization, you have a spider chart. Most of the computing experience we have as consumers is on the World Wide Web, right? All of these things. These are all metaphors sort of writ large. And I, I guess the, the, the corollary to that is then the ultimate in biomimicry and uh, in thinking in terms of metaphor in computing in our relationship with computing, which I think is going to come back and be something that designers are, are going to struggle with more and more and more going forward now that we are in an age of AI and spatial computing, and that's the idea of anthropomorphism. So, Susan, would you like to give a mini lecture on anthropomorphism? Of course I would. So, anthropomorphism oh, It's is an easy when, one for her. So, she, just, when, she likes when they're easy. When, they, when you attribute uh, human uh, characteristics, motivation, um, and thought processes to things that are not human. Uh, and, that, so, yeah. and that can be like an animal, like you can talk about a dog or cat as though they were doing human things, or it could be a, a not an inanimate object. So, you know, we can, uh, which, <laughs> which happens all the time when I'm interacting with chat GPT, I, I am definitely, right, exactly. you know, anthropomorphizing it or robots and so on. And we attribute to these things characteristics that are really just human characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. We were in the car the other day and my wife uh, gave direction. She was using her, her phone and she gave directions uh, and then she had, she had misspoken. And then when she corrected, she said, Siri, I'm sorry. And then corrected herself. Right, right. And I was like, did, did you just apologize to a computer? I'm telling you, there are times when, uh, I, and it's just like this automatic thing, like, uh, uh, you know, I'll, 
I'll ha- I'll say Alexa, you know, can you give me the weather forecast? Mm-hmm. And it gives me mm-hmm. the weather forecast, and then I say thank you, and it's like, okay, why am I? Why didn't I just? <laughs> why didn't exactly. I Alexa? Exactly. Um, or you know, just all kinds of things. Like uh, there's some wonderful research done by Kate Darling um, at MIT, uh, who takes you know like. Uh, uh, kind of really simple robots like um, a little dinosaur that moves and interacts with you and um, you know it'll it'll like whimper or cry if you interact with a certain way and people just like oh my god stop you're hurting it you know like it's like it's not hurt it's really not hurt but you know it's like people are like don't you know, you're making it feel bad. Um, yeah, this is a a very big thing, um, and and it's an interesting thing about humans. You know, so uh, the more we interact with things that are not human but are have human like tendencies, the more you know this will happen. I think it also brings up the relationship when the when the computer is an intermediary to humans, then it has the inverse effect. So much as we form emotional attachments to our computers in various ways through things like anthropomorphizing them, uh, we can uh, lessen emotional attachments to human beings by interacting with them strictly through the virtual world, right? There's a, there's a great quote from... One of my uh, favorite philosophers, Mike Tyson, who recently said that the problem with the internet is that people will say things on the internet that they wouldn't say in real life because they're not afraid of getting punched in the mouth. And I think that that's true. So you have a lack of civility. Uh, if you're on Twitter for more than half a minute, you see all kinds of yeah. crazy, uncivil behavior. Yeah. And you know, I see that on Facebook all the time. I'm part of some of these... Uh, you know, these local chat groups for, for various cities and that I have affiliation with. And people will ask benign, innocuous questions like, well, where's the best place to go for for tacos or something? And, and somebody will just absolutely flame on them. Well, that's been answered six times in the last week. Uh, you know, don't you read? Aren't you a dummy? Just say just these horrible things. And, um, and that's one of the issues in our computing world is that the the emotional aspects of computing are at least as important as the cognitive aspects. And I think as designers, we don't, we don't often take that into consideration. And that needs to be more yeah. and more of a part of how designers think. There, there's another, some other interesting research. Have you ever heard of the of, of Blab Droid? No, I've not. D-R-O-I-D, and this goes back at least 10 years, I think. So this group of researchers, I don't know where they're from, they made this little robot device. It, it's like it literally, uh, you know, the size of a very small box, and it's literally made out of cardboard. Um, and it has little wheels, and, and it, it rolls around, and it, it, can, it asks you questions, and they started using it at like conferences and festivals and it would just bump into you and then ask you a question, uh, uh, you know, like, have you ever been in love or what's really important to you about your family? I mean, it just asks questions and you respond and it records your answers. And, um, and, and they found out just so many interesting things. I mean, and there's a wonderful, wonderful video about this. Hmm. And there are these people at this festival and they're sitting in a little corner and they're just having these long conversations. Well, and then I I told him that it was really important. I mean, they're just like pouring their hearts out (laughs) to a cardboard box, right? And, And so the researchers experimented with what the box looks like the voice of the box. So they get the most uh, opening and vulnerability when the box sounds like um, like a five-year-old mm. uh, uh, child. When, that, when the voice is kind of like this. 
So how do you feel about this? You know, um, they also found that can, people. Can you just do every podcast with that voice? <laughs> <laughs> and then they also they also found out that um, people would open up more when because the box would go around you know the festival and it would bump into things and it would get dinged up you know it would get dense the more dented it got the more people talked to it it's like it became it, it just became more human as yeah. a dented box than as a perfect box um so i i found the whole blob droid thing so just can i can i push back just for a second Yes, go ahead, Catherine. I uh, th that research was really interesting, but I do wonder if some of these things uh, society sometimes takes a long time to adapt to yeah. things Change that it new new things stuff. that it's exposed to, and yeah. you know, and by a long time, like a lot of people just don't realize the changes that happen throughout a society that that like are on the orders of magnitude of ten years, twenty years, fifteen yeah. years, that kind of thing. So. There was a point in time in which people trusted technology and then, you know, social media happened and all these tech companies happened and people were like, oh, this is great technology, fun. And then they got burned over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the internet was like a dangerous, scary place and people developed really tough shells and, you know, the, the, you know, the people are worried about privacy and mm -hmm. it's all uh, controlled by the evil liberal elites and it has, uh, they're selling your data and they're mining it. And so there's, there's a lot more fear and apprehension now about who's behind the software, what is going on. Yeah. And I do wonder if you repeated the, now, now in an age of uh, fear of a lot of different chat yeah. assistants tech assistants yeah, yeah, if yeah. you repeated some of that those studies would, would you get they, different things yeah. because people I, are just like i, I am not i am not, not saying anything, anything yeah because i don't know who, who what they're going to do who's with my really behind this yeah yeah no so I, I so I, I do wonder i think you're right i it probably does change over time yeah and i think again the the key point from a perspective of an audience of designers and and people who are involved in designing experiences and products is that the collective we that are involved in that production process need to take into account the emotions right. of the users and customers of the things that we create and one of the key issues that's part of you know the core emotional models is always going to be trust the extent to which I, I trust this product, I trust the data, I believe in the security of my information, those sorts of things. And as we get into a world that's infused with AI, uh, that's going to become even more, uh, even more of an issue. This is um, fantastic. Did you guys read the Mozilla report that came out this week? No, uh, I didn't. Really fantastic um, research done by Mozilla, which makes the Firefox browser uh, about uh, privacy in car brands. Yeah. Because yeah. it's something that no one's thought of because it's not in your house and it's not connected to your internet. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it, you know how poorly designed like every car infotainment system is? And yeah. it's just not well done. Yeah. Take that same level of polish and apply it to how they're using, collecting, and selling uh, data. data. So, yeah. like, they're, the, the things that they can collect and are collecting and selling is enormous. And as more and more cars become um, connected to the internet and are trans, you know, transmitting data back, it's driving habits, it's where you're going. Uh, they, you know, uh, so the new GM Altium platform, the whole point is that you can't use your phone. You have to log in yeah. through their system. So they have your login, demographic data, where you're going, when you're going, driving habits, what you listen to, uh, the driver facing cameras to record your facial expressions. It's a whole nightmare of privacy stuff. And no one's really thought about it because it's a car. Um, and so it's like, oh, wait, oh, fun. Now we have to worry about all this stuff, but in my car. Um, so that's just, just a whole new yeah. uh, vector of 
stuff that people didn't yeah. even, I don't think is even on people's radars. So well, that's, that, that's a great thing to read. I'm going to go back and read all the dystopian novels that I read when I was <laughs> in my early and early twenties. Um, so Susan, I wanted to come back to some of these characteristics and attributes uh, before we, before we wrap today, just to kind of put a bow around that, because I know okay. we've got um, uh, only, you know, a dozen more episodes to, to get through. <laughs> this. Yeah, but, you guys are running out. <laughs> running out of things to say. No, no, we're not. Uh, sadly, but we should, we should potentially move on to, uh, perhaps move on to some other things, but there are some other characteristics, uh, in addition to the things that we've talked to, uh, talked about uh, today, uh, about object oriented design that are important for people to be aware of. So one is the, the, the nature of an object. There are different types of objects, right? And there are various ways that you can conceptualize that, but, We've talked about, for example, the trash can or the recycle bin or folders or some of these things. These are objects that contain other objects, mm -hmm. right? So the playlist is a container object that contains mm -hmm. songs, which are themselves an object. So that construct of containment is another key characteristic in object-oriented design, which is similar to but distinct from the notion of composite objects, right? So a, an object can be composed of other objects. So for example, a spreadsheet is composed of rows, columns, and the intersection of those, which are cells, right? So mm -hmm. two other characteristics that are important to think about are composition and containers. Objects also have this idea of state. What state is the thing in? So if I open a folder on my desktop and I have several of them open, one of them will be active and in front based on what I've clicked on, and the other may be behind it. So one is active or open, and one is inactive, and I can open it and close it. So when I close it, and it goes away, and I open it again, and it appears in the same location and has a certain persistence. This goes back to all the psychology around object permanence, right? You expect that thing to come back, and you expect it to come back in the place where it was the last time. So some of these other characteristics, such as state and persistence, are important things to think about when you're designing object-oriented systems. You know, one of the things I would I I was thinking about uh, a set of screens that I was reviewing recently, and um, that had been designed without it. It was fairly clear to me when I was looking at the screens. Okay, this did not have this was not designed based on objects and views. And it had some of these problems that you were just talking about. Um, but another another problem I thought it had was that it was just this mixing up. You know, it had this view of, you know, this top line window and there were, you know, tabs or things in the menu to choose. And some of the things were objects and some of the things were container objects and some of the things were composite objects and some of the things were actions and some of the things were views of other <laughs> objects. And so you would look at this and, you know, essentially it was like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? Um, and it just really brought home to me the fact that, you know, if you don't design this, so here's what's interesting, I think, about object-oriented desi object design. If you don't purposely and consciously make decisions about these things, it's not like they aren't there. <laughs> it's not like, well, I'm not using object-oriented design, therefore, I don't have objects. No, you do. You do. You right. just didn't decide on them, and they just bubbled up from other things. And so now you have this mishmash of objects yeah. and views and composite objects and actions. 
that don't make sense because, of course, they're going to be there. You can't design anything without having an object somewhere in your design. Um, and you probably have multiple ones. But if you don't think about it ahead of time, then you're going to end up with a very confused interaction. Yeah, and, and so as we've sort of aptly titled this series, Objects and Views, the key thing is to be thoughtful as you not only define objects, but arrange them according to tasks and workflow in a series of views to support a way of working that makes sense for users, right? And so every object is going to have one or many views, and the views of that object are going to be arranged according to task flow, and our job is to make sense of that. And so if you think about, for example, in if you go to Amazon.com, and you search for a book, let's say you search for 100 things that every designer needs to know about people. It's a great book. It's a great book. I've, I've heard very good things about that. And then you get your search results, then you are going to get uh, a set of results with the different editions, maybe different languages, whatever. You'll get some recommended books that are related to that. You'll get a hundred more things that every designer needs to know about people on the same list, but you will get this list view. So I'm searching for a book. I'm searching for a specific book. I go from a search view in the software to a list view. And then when I click on the thing that I want, which is that book by Susan Weinshank, then that goes to a detail view. And that object that is that book has certain actions that I can take on it. I can buy it now. I can add it to my cart. I can put it on my wish list. Those are actions that I can take on it. So back to this idea of the characteristics or the elements of object-oriented design we have views, and we have actions, and we even have attributes, much like you'd have in database design, where every book has a title, it has an author, it has an isbin, uh, it has a price, etc. And those characteristics and others are the things that we need to understand and make sense of and communicate clearly including this uh, relationship that we've talked about before of, uh, of inheritance, this hereditary hierarchy where objects have parents, which are classes, and you inherit these things like the attributes from that class. Uh, these are all the things that the designer has to keep in mind, and there are ways of doing that, and I think that's where I'd like to take our next conversation. So we're not done. You didn't quite get there. Is that all right? It's fine with me. Although all five right. was a nice round number. It was never. First of all, five is not a round number. It's a prime number. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't see how it can be round if it's not even. <laughs> prime prime numbers are usually pretty, uh, pretty uh, sharp Let's numbers. See what I have to put up with. Well, 17. This is your progeny. So. It's like a... Uh, it's a sharp number. <laughs> so I think so. Uh, I think if we're satisfied with the characteristics of objects, yes. uh, I think we can probably do one more and wrap a bow around uh, around this series. But I'd like to talk about how do you do all these things? What's the process? Yeah. Right. We were talking right. about when we were pre-gaming a little bit here, just kind of talking about our history with uh, object-oriented processes. Um, you know, we didn't invent it. We made use of it, and we've included it in a few different processes that we've created in various places over the last few decades. But um, but there's a fairly modest history of object-oriented design processes, uh, and it just relates to the whole topic of even if you're not using that methodology, which people rarely do anymore, uh, how do you include this in your work? So the yeah. actual... The actual methodological view of things. 
things you you can and should do if you want to purposely make object decisions in your design. Exactly. So how about we pick up there next time? That sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the lectures. <laughs> Thanks for the quiz. Did I pass? Absolutely. Oh, phew. <laughs> I will be submitting point. submitting your grades at the end of the term. Okay. All right. I better pass. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Guthrie. Bye. Another fun chat. Talk soon. <laughs>